The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. All right, good news, lots of good news, and there's more good news as we hear the scripture reading for today. This is a revolutionary event in Jesus' life from John chapter 11. It transformed his ministry, what happened after this event as people saw uh, Lazarus be raised from the dead. Uh, but before that, uh, an amazing dialogue took place between him and Martha. So Mary and Martha were sisters. Lazarus was their brother. Jesus was close friends with all of them. He stayed in, in their home once in a while. And uh, we'll let the verses from John chapter 11 uh, tell the story. So uh, here it is. There was a certain, man, uh, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the, the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And who, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. These are great words of Jesus in the gospel of the Lord. All righty. As they head out, let's just bow our heads and uh, ask God to bless our hearing of his word. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from you. We need your voice. We need your grace. We need the news of Jesus. There's a lot in our minds and hearts today, a lot going on in our lives. We pray that you would make room today for what is new and good and life-changing as we listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. It's great to be with you. Uh, this is a, a wonderful church, a terrific faith community. I praise God for all of you. Uh, I hope you know even the, how good uh, this faith community is. Everything from your love for one another, your mission work, your sending, the cool things that happen musically up here with the music. I hope you hear that and appreciate it. It's great, Tanner and crew. It's fantastic. So uh, I give thanks to God for you. You're a bright, shining light in God's kingdom because you're not a church that stays within the walls of the church. You are the church as you live your life with one another. And that is key. That's, that's critical. It's crucial to uh, seeing more and more people know Jesus and have an eternity that lasts forever with him. What we're going to do today, is I, I never want to make a message a business message. You know, you took the survey, a whole bunch of you did. There's some on your chairs, there's sheets there that summarize feedback from the survey. So at the end of the message, I'm just going to cover that very briefly. You can read it for yourself. You're going to have a lot of dialogues. We'll talk about it just a little bit. But I'm going to ask you some questions at the end of this message as well so we get a little dialogue going uh, very briefly. It's important, though, before we talk about the what, you know, calling a pastor, having a pastor to team up with you in God's kingdom, that we talk about the why. It's so important to know the underlying reason why you are even calling a pastor, why you have this complementary relationship between pastor and people in a church, in a faith community. So that's really critical. And you've been going through a series called Three Great Questions. Today we're going to talk about your destiny. The big question we're going to look at is, what happens to me when I die? It is central to everything you're doing as God's people gathered here. It is central to it. Uh, and it's something that's kind of tough to talk about, isn't it? Uh, there's a question I want to ask you, and this is the first time working with whoever's changing the slides, so we're just going to, I'll cue you, we'll work it together. This question, what does it take for you to think seriously about your fate after death? Sometimes it's just not on your radar, is it? Even though there are plenty of reminders all around us. Uh, during our prayer time before the service, I hadn't had a chance to look at the headlines yet. I got up early, drove up here from San Antonio. But storms went through during the night. It kept me awake a little bit, too. Uh, you probably heard them. But I guess up in Dallas, there were some serious storms, tornadoes. A number of people were killed. A lot of people were injured. You hear these kinds of things every day, whether it's overseas, whether it's terrorism, whether it's shootings. You are reminded of death every day, but it's easy for you and me to ignore. Uh, the chief operating officer of Facebook, Shelley, uh, uh, Cheryl Sandberg, recently lost her husband, and maybe you heard about it in 2015. They were on vacation in Mexico, and he went to the exercise room. Young family, two young children. He went to the exercise room. He never came back. He died in the exercise room of some kind of strange a physical condition. And Cheryl Sandberg is now writing a book with a psychologist friend of hers. And she said this in an interview this week about the book. She said, there is deep irony in the fact that death is the most basic human experience, right? There's life and there's death, yet it's so uncomfortable. I think one of the reasons we're afraid of bringing it up uh, is because it's something bad. We're afraid of bringing up something bad. So we're afraid to talk about death. We're afraid to talk about our fate after this life, our eternity. But the fact is, it's in our lives, and it intrudes 
into our hearts and emotions on a regular basis. Uh, my wife and I have some good friends. Uh, they're, for us, a younger couple. So she's 30, he, he, he's 31, he was 31. She, uh, he passed away about a month ago. Unexpected kind of thing. Again, strange illness. Um, they were married only five years. I, I was able to actually officiate at their wedding. So dear, dear people. And it was a total surprise that he passed away. Suddenly, there's this 30-year-old widow who's facing grief and brokenheartedness every day. And the question, the big question, what happens next? What happens next? It's an important question, a key issue. And the fact is, bringing it up here today, you know, oh, it's why I think about death, why something so negative. We can look at the less, next slide. Sometimes discomfort with your present leads to deliberation about your future. And this is one thing God does in your life and mine. Uh, you know, Karl Marx a long time ago wrote that religion is the opiate of the people. Well, he was totally off track, totally wrong. Religion, true religion, faith is not an opiate. It's not uh, something that soothes you artificially so you can deny reality. In fact, religion, true religion, faith in God walking with Jesus is really Jesus getting in your face every day, showing you a grim and brutal reality that you would not otherwise want to face. Your own fallenness, your own brokenness, your own deepest needs, and the fact of your own death and wrestling with what goes on after that. So sometimes discomfort with your present leads to serious deliberation about your future, and that's one favor God does for you and me on a regular basis. So I just want to ask you, uh, there are theories and ideologies about what happens when you die. And I think it's very important not to take anything for granted. It's important not to sit here today thinking that everybody somehow uh, just automatically assumes that there's life after death and what kind of life after death that is. So through the history of the world, uh, there have been theories about the afterlife. And before we put any on the screen, I just want to ask you, what are some prominent theories developed by us as humans about what happens when you die. Can you think of any? Say it nice and loud so I can hear. This is, all right, reincarnation's a big one. Yes, reincarnation. Yeah, and we'll just go through it right away when you mention it. So this is a key characteristic of human behavior. See, reincarnation says that when you die, you will come back, typically, so this is Hinduism mostly, in the form of some other living creature. The average number of reincarnations needed by a Hindu in order for a person to reach perfect peace or nirvana is about what? Guess what number of reincarnations Hinduism says. Uh, you know, seven? Eight? Try 10,000. Yeah, 10,000. So 10,000 reincarnations. One that recognizes the difficulty of navigating life on our own and reaching perfect peace in our own power, right? So there's a human affirmation of that. Two, it shows that when it comes to human ingenuity and ideological systems or philosophies or religions, typically what we do is try to make things up that we're familiar with. So we have trouble thinking outside of the box, in other words. So what you'll find in human-constructed religions are elements that we're familiar with. So we say reincarnation because we're familiar with all those other living creatures and we, we reincarnate into familiar forms hoping to get to a perfect peace. That's typical human thinking. 
Right? So it's part of the closed system of our knowledge. What's another theory about life after death? Nothing, right. All right, so let's show the two. So reincarnation before that is annihilation. Very good. Good with those slides. Way to put them up there. So annihilation. There's nothing. This is it. Once you die, then you're done. And this is prominent in Judaism, of course, atheism. Uh, it's a prominent humanly developed thought as well. And this is another key kind of symptomatic method of human thinking. In addition to developing things we're familiar with and putting them into a system, the other side is denial. We are really good at denial. Do you know that? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, you know, very good at denial. We're good at denial when it comes to addictions. We're good at denial if all your friends are telling you the guy you're going out with is a real loser and terrible. You're good at denial, right? You say, well, I, I think I'll change him. You know, I think it's going to be okay. We're good at denial in all kinds of things. It's, it's a reflex we have. And so what we do is if there's any indication of supernatural or knowledge outside of ourselves, which we'll talk about, we want to say, no, there's no such thing. This is it. All we know is here and now. We make ourselves the limit of all knowledge. So annihilation is symptomatic of that type of thought. But see, this shows the contrast between two areas of knowledge. And let's take a look at natural knowledge versus revealed knowledge. So natural knowledge is science. The word science means knowledge. Science is not an enemy of religion. As a matter of fact, faith and science go hand in hand because science is a subset of faith. Science means knowledge. It's observable, empirical. It's what you can test. It's the things you can experiment with. It's things we can apprehend because we see them. All right, that's natural knowledge. Some people would limit life to natural knowledge. One thing we've been shown, though, we couldn't make this up, but we've been shown is something called revealed knowledge. You may have heard the term, it's the last book of the Bible, Revelation. All right? God has made known something new and different to us, and he's done it in a way that's not just pie in the sky, not just, well, it's a pipe dream made up, it kind of is a feeling you may have, but he's rooted, revealed knowledge in history. Now, we don't have time to go through all of it, but all through the Bible, there are eyewitness accounts, people encountering the living God, the supernatural, that which is outside of ourselves, doing things that we could never do. And so all the miracles, all the beautiful things, God coming to his people through the history of his people and culminating in Jesus Christ. And so we see the birth of Jesus. We see Jesus, uh, you know, heralded by angels, supernatural things, witnessed by people just like you and me, documented in history. We see Jesus' transfiguration when he appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who are the two guys that appeared to them? Moses and Elijah, two people who had died long ago. So in this area of revealed knowledge, God shows you and me that there is something more. As a matter of fact, there's more than this. There's more than this. There's a life that goes on beyond the physical realm, the natural knowledge realm, the now. There's more than this. And this is one of the key points for this message today. There's more than this. This is something you can hold on to. This is something that gives you hope. Ultimately, we see it in Jesus himself. It is death on the cross. And in the fact that, as the song beautifully said, he put death in the grave. 
and he rose up from death, showing you and me that there's more than this. There's more than this life. There's more than just coming back with, you know, as a bug or a cow or things we're familiar with. There is something beautiful, something miraculous that follows this life. What happens when you die? Something huge, something eternal. Jesus shows that, and he articulated that to Martha when Martha was so broken, so hurting because of this sudden death, this terrible death of her brother Lazarus. And you saw what Jesus said in John chapter 11. Let's just take a look at the verse again. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now we're going to stop there before the question. Jesus shows you there's more than this. And as I said, it's historical. It's documented. This is the New Testament we're talking about. Now, uh, when you look at historical literature, and some of you may have studied this before, but I just want to give you a little perspective because I think we need to give you the confidence that you can go from here and talk to people who feel hopeless or wonder what's going to happen after they die or think it's nothing. You need the confidence to go to them and say, hey, no, there's more than this. There's more than this. Let me tell you about it. So this is the New Testament we're talking about, Jesus' words. Now, in historical literature, we teach things in schools like uh, about Aristotle, philosophers. We teach about, uh, we teach Shakespeare all kinds of great things. We teach about some other ancient philosophers. It's very interesting that when it comes to document evidence of the accuracy of uh, teachings of Aristotle, the number of ancient documents we have that corroborate what Aristotle said compared to more modern documents, uh, we only have seven. Seven historical documents. Now, historians love that. They say, wow, we've got seven. Holy cow. That's fantastic. We can cross-reference and see that we have accurate data. Uh, when it comes to even later writers like Shakespeare, you know, some of his original things, you can go to the British Museum and see some of his original folios. It's beautiful. We only have a few dozen original Shakespeare writings, but yet we study that every day, and sometimes students groan about studying it in school. You know how many ancient documents we have that bear testimony to the accuracy of the New Testament? Take a guess. How many? 2,800 is a nice guess. That would be great, wouldn't it? 2,800, that would be fantastic. Historians would like have a field day with 2,800. How many, any other guesses? Close, it's over 5,000. And that's just the New Testament, over 5,000. The New Testament is the most accurate ancient document in the world. In fact, we're reading the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John. We have fragments of the Gospel of John that corroborate with all the other historical documents of the Gospel of John. We have <clears throat> fragments that date to just a, a little over a generation after John wrote the Gospel. That's unheard of in ancient historical literature. If you ask a historian, a secular historian, what, what's good data? How old does it have to be? He says, if it's if it's a thousand years old, I'll take it as accurate. A thousand years old. Yet we have manuscript after manuscript. I've looked at a manuscript in the British Museum, a complete New Testament that's only a couple hundred years old after the actual writing. So when we read the scriptures, 
what God has caused to be documented when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, which is witnessed by hundreds of people, his words, his miracles, his coming, his ascension. When we read that, we say, whoa, this was documented by witnesses. We can trust it. We can believe it. It would hold up in a court of law. So when Jesus says, there's more than this, you can trust what he says. Now, there are two sides to this, however. There is more than this. We have lives that last forever. But there are two options. One option is to navigate life on your own, to handle it under your own strength and power, and to see how you're going to fare now and in eternity. We get glimpses of that every day, how we do on our own, don't we? I mean, okay, so let's just give some examples. How do we do on our own, with our own ingenuity and power. There's some great things we develop, some beautiful artwork, music, great things. There's some really nice stuff. But there's some really ugly stuff too, isn't there? And ultimately, if you look deep in your heart, you know the struggle called life, don't you? It's challenging. Right now, you come into this room with worries, with cares, with prayers, with things you hope are answered, with hopes, with dreams. You come in here with deep wounds, with baggage. Life is not a piece of cake. And as you look to the future, you see there are some big challenges ahead. If you choose to navigate life on your own, now you're navigating life even in the greater grace of God who's sustaining this whole world. If you choose to navigate life on your own, your eternity on your own, the picture gets even more dark and more dismal, more chaotic and more confusing. The Bible calls it hell. Eternal separation from God trying to make it on your own. There's more than just this. And one option is a horrible existence without God. Another option is something beautiful, something you and I could never think up, something you and I could never develop or achieve. The Bible calls it heaven. It is navigating life, this life now and forever, in the footsteps of and in the presence of Jesus. Jesus who loves you and embraces you and cares about you and pursues you, the Savior who even now, through a living word and through his presence and communion, lives in you and refreshes you and restores you and who promises that in eternity that restoration will be complete. That because he takes your baggage, he takes your brokenness, your restoration, your complete joy, the fullness of your life will be certain as a gift from him. There's more than this. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asked Martha, do you believe this? Folks, I think that's an important question, you know, since Jesus brought it up, to ask today. To ask of you, do you believe this? Do you, do you really believe this? Some of you, maybe most of you, are followers of Jesus today. But you know what? It's important to ask this question because it's easy to just slowly drift away from really, really trusting in your Savior Jesus, from really consulting with him about everything in your life, from really acknowledging his faithfulness and looking for him and seeing him in everything, even as he showed Mary and Martha, even in the tragedies that befall you. 
This is a good day to hear Jesus say, do you believe this? And to reaffirm your faith and say, wow, you know, Lord, yes, I do. I do believe this. It's a good day to ask that question if you're a follower of Jesus too because it ignites what's most important for you to live for and share as well. And if you don't know him, if you're not following him, oh, is this an important question? Because it's the key to what happens now and forever. Do you believe this? This is a day, and you know, God gives these days. So it's April 30th, 2017. This is a day that maybe you mark on your calendar to say, you know what, up to that date, I wasn't really paying attention. I wasn't really paying attention. But everything is at stake. And yes, I believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And I want him to have his say, his complete say, in every part of my existence. It's an important question, and it's important to answer. Do you believe this? Now, this message could end right here with what is really an important call to faith or reaffirmation of your faith. But there's something else we need to talk about. We have to talk about what does this mean for your life. If you say, yes, I believe, yes, there, when I die, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of him taking my shame and my baggage, the gift of him taking my exhaustion and just carrying me, the gift of him giving me the promise of life everlasting. Because of that, I've got a totally new perspective on life. What does it mean now? What does it mean? Now, I want to dispel the rumor that the afterlife, eternal life, heaven is boring. Because sometimes that's how it gets, doesn't it? I mean, you say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to embrace this life, but gosh, I don't want to just sit on a cloud in eternity, strumming a harp, doing nothing. That sounds very boring. It sounds boring to me. I wouldn't want that. So something very important for you to realize is that heaven is not boring. Heaven is not a letdown. Eternal life with Jesus is yours now, right now because of redemption, and in eternity as you move through this life, there will be a fuller culmination. In the book of Revelation, we see a picture of heaven. We see the saints in heaven, and they're not just sitting around. In fact, here's a verse from Revelation chapter 7. The saints of God, those redeemed by him, are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. They're serving him. They're active. They're engaged. The important truth for you to realize is that heaven is not an escape. Let's look at the next slide. Heaven is not an escape. It is engagement in God's plan. It's an engagement. In other words, your life, your eternal life, is going to be fullness that you really wish you could experience right now. You're going to be using your gifts, your talents. You're going to be doing things you love to do, the passions of your heart. You're going to be in relationship with people more full and complete than you can even imagine right now. It is a place of of satisfaction, engagement, and creativity that you can't even imagine. You get little glimpses of it. It's a kind of life that is lived, and maybe you've experienced this. There are some days when you're looking forward to doing some things, you just can't wait to get out of bed. Do you have those days? Like, ooh, I, can't, I cannot wait. There are some days you dread, right? So tomorrow's Monday, and maybe the grind is coming. But some days you say, I cannot wait to get to that task. If I, if I could get up in the morning and have a great workout and do some writing and be with my family, I am so happy. I love that. 
that is just a taste of the eternity Jesus is preparing for you. Heaven is not boring. Heaven is not an escape. It's engagement in God's plan. In fact, what it means for your life today is that now prepares you for what's next. This is really important. Let's take a look at the next one. Now prepares you for what's next. So there's more than this, and this is actually preparing you for the fullness of God's plan in your life. This is preparation for what's next. And uh, the question you and I are asked is, well, what are you doing with your now? What are you doing with your now? Uh, you saw the movie Groundhog Day. Have you seen that before? So what happens at Groundhog Day? Give me a thumbnail sketch of that. He repeats his day, Bill Murray, so he's the lead character. It's Groundhog Day. He somehow, in some way, every day is repeated. He wakes up to the same music, gets out of bed, sees the same people. And at first, what's his reaction? Well, he hates it at first, doesn't he? Remember? He hates it. He gets up, and he, he, he's getting sick and tired of it. He's frustrated. He hears the same song. He sees the same people. He sees people make the same mistakes. He starts being mean to people. He starts just lashing out. But then, after a whole bunch of repeats of the same day, he gets an idea. He said, maybe I should use this time wisely. So he started, like, taking piano lessons. And can you imagine? So one day would repeat over and over again. And so every day his teacher, you know, in reality... In, in Bill Murray's life, a whole month passes or two months, but the teacher thinks it's at one day, and Bill Murray comes on the first day. He can barely plink out a tune. After 30 days, he's playing concert music, and the teacher says, wow, you must be practicing. He learns new languages. He knows that a certain person is going to step in this deep puddle when they're trying to avoid a car and get ruin their day, so he saves them from the mishap. He starts using his days wisely. You see, what God has given you and me is an opportunity now to hone our skills for the role he has for us in eternity. So now prepares you for what's next. And this leads us just to two perspective changes, perhaps, that you can take with you today. The first one is how are you seeing your life? And the second one is how are you using your life? So because you know that there's more than this, let's take a look at there's more than this. Because you know this, how do you see your life differently? When something terrible is happening, when you're frustrated, when your prayers don't seem to be answered, when there's incompleteness in your life, you say, wait a minute, there's more than this. I see my life differently. I have hope. I know I'm not alone. I know God has a great plan. I know that I'm, I'm in the stream of eternally making a difference for him. I'm important to him and his plan. So I have hope and I see my life a little differently. I see it completely differently. It's not just chaos, chance, random frustration. There's something bigger going on here. I look for Jesus everywhere I go. So you see your life differently. The next thing you do is you use your life differently. And this is one thing I really want to emphasize. Uh, let's take a look at the next slide. You get good at what you practice. 
You get good. So how are you using your life differently? Because your life lasts forever because of Jesus' grace. You get good at what you practice. Now, I've seen people practice things in their lives like negativity, meanness, grouchiness. I've seen them practice. You know what they get good at? Being negative, mean, and grouchy. I've seen 80-year-old, 90-year-old people who long before that decided that they were just going to be critical spirits, thorns in the flesh of people, look at the glass half empty all the time, forget about trusting in Christ, forget about the active role of God has in all things, and they became bitter, negative people nobody wanted to be around. You get good at what you practice. What are you practicing now that you don't want to get good at? What are you practicing now that you don't want to get good at? Is it a habit? Is it an attitude? Is it something that could lead to addictive behavior? Is it the way you treat people in your life? What are you practicing that you don't want to get good at? And as the Spirit speaks to you today, what can you practice that you want to foster and grow in preparation for a life that is eternal? Like generosity. Forgiveness, being a hopeful person, a faithful person, someone who's pure, someone who shines the light of Jesus, someone who encourages others and builds them up, someone who's selfless, someone who's a non-anxious presence with others, who brings the peace of God. What can you practice in your life that will make lives better? And that will allow you to get really, really good at it. And if God allows you to live till you're 90 years old, 95 years old, people will look at you, they'll sit with you, and they'll say, wow, wow, this person is an amazing person to be with. Because you practice, you practiced all your life. I just want you to contemplate this question here briefly. I want to give you just a minute to... Uh, contemplate this. How is Jesus leading you today to see your now differently, your life differently, and to use your now differently? So um, I'm just going to give you a minute, and I know I'm taking a lot of time, but I'm a guest, and <laughs> what are you going to do, right? <laughs> so I'm going to give you one minute to uh, take a look at this question. If there's someone next to you you came with and you just want to talk about this a little bit, I find no better time to apply a message and teaching than the present because once you walk out the doors, you're hungry, you're looking for food, and you're arguing about where you're going to eat and all kinds of other things. So, so how is Jesus leading you today to see your now differently? So attitudes about what's going on in your life and to use your now differently. Habits, practices that glorify him. Take about a minute. Okay, maybe that gets you started a little bit. It's definitely not enough time, but it's good to leave wanting more and talk about this more and think about it more. Um, this, this is why you're calling a pastor, because of this most important focus in life. There's more than this. Now prepares you for what's next. You get good at what you practice. You need to do this together as a community of faith. 
And so you filled out a uh, survey, and again, you have the results on that sheet. You could look at, this is a summary of the results. The call committee has all the comments and everything, and they're taking a very close look at it. This is a summary of what's happening. Now, I do want to let you know, if you, have, if you want to read more about what happens when you die, uh, I have a slide up here, I think, with my, a book I wrote. Uh, oh, wrong book. What happens when you die? Do you have that one? Maybe not. Uh, and is, is my website up there? Did you put that up there too? Well, I wrote a little book. It's about 100 pages called What Happens When You Die. If you have questions about heaven, hell, angels, uh, life, purpose life, just, uh, my website is mnewman.org, M-N-E-W-M-A-N.org. You could, it's, a, it's in Kindle, hard copy, and it really digs a little more deeply into this, has some journal and study questions too, so I want to let you know about that. But uh, let's take a look at calling a pastor, okay? Um, you filled out the survey. Oh, boy. It's a mountainous task. And let's look at some results. Do you have uh, the results up there? There were 66 of you who completed the survey. And um, here's some results. This is the kind of pastor you're looking for. Oh, there we go. Let's look at the next slide. This is the kind of person you're looking for. So the things you highlighted, definitely a good communicator, someone who can engage with you on a deeper level of conversation and faith, a collaborator to work not only with lay people but with staff, uh, someone who fits the younger demographic of your community was something that came up and of people you're reaching, someone who can help cast the vision of what's next, for Acts Church Leander, a humble follower of Jesus, someone who has a deep and authentic relationship with Christ, follows him and what he teaches and what he brings flows from the wealth of what God has blessed him with. And of course, someone who's relational, not only with you, but in the community, community focused for your serving, for engaging others in the community. That's key. Uh, some other characteristics, someone who's sending oriented, uh, and that's so important when it comes to uh, the network you're in is the Acts Network, someone who, who is focused on intentional multiplication of the church, planting more churches, raising up new leaders, and sending all of you to make the difference in the communities God has placed you in your families and in your lives. Someone who's multiplication-minded, as I mentioned. Someone who matches your worship style as well because there's some pastors out there who are a little more traditional, as some of you probably know, and someone who can really uh, mesh with this style, love it, embrace it, and uh, function in it well. Uh, the key thing I want to ask you today is, what didn't the survey allow you to articulate? And I'd love to just, uh, there are some great, lots of great comments. I think the survey, even though imperfect, uh, there's reason why we asked those questions. Uh, it was pretty open-ended, so a lot of folks commented, but what are a couple of thoughts that you may have that you couldn't put on the survey or didn't think to put on the survey, and I'm going to write them down. Anything come to mind? I want to give you a chance at least, and of course I'll be hanging around so you can let me know. But Anything? It's okay if there isn't. That means you all had good opportunity to speak your voice. If you need to add anything... Over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be asked to submit names of possible pastors. That's where the next step in the process goes. So by looking at this, 
And by hearing this, the goal is for you to say, oh, I think I know of someone who may fit. And you could submit that name to the call committee. Are you guys going to have forms? Or? Okay, forms are in the back. So over the, for about two weeks, two weeks, note who the pastor is, where he may be located. The call committee is going to put all those names together and send them, along with the data from the survey and everything they did, to the Texas District Office. So you may think a lot of this is, duh, everybody knows what Axe Leander is like. But you're bringing other people into the loop who uh, need to be informed and have an accurate vision of who you are so they can then also put names on this list. They're going to add names to the names you suggest. Those will come back to the call committee, and then the call committee will start going through those names. One final note about why this is so important. Um, the area where Axley Anderson is experiencing 20% growth over the next four to five years. It's growing like crazy. A lot of younger families. Out of the 60,000 people in just a three-mile radius around the church, fewer than 10,000 say it's important to go to a worship service on a weekend. Fewer than 10,000. Yet, almost three times that amount, that fewer than 10,000. So around 25,000 people claim they're spiritual. So you know what's happening. The Holy Spirit is prodding them, saying, you know, there's more than this. There's more than this. What is it? What could it be? You're in this community to help those people find the greatest and most beautiful treasure anyone could ever receive for this life and for life that lasts forever. Let's bow our heads and pray. Gracious God, uh, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thank you for helping this community of faith. When it comes to a search for a pastoral leader, we pray that your spirit would be present in a bold and beautiful way and that you would walk with this congregation. Lord God, we don't deserve your goodness and grace. We don't deserve the gift of new life you give us. So we come before you humbly, but also very, very excited that the presence of your Son is going to dwell in us through Holy Communion. We pray that you would hear us as we confess ways we've been practicing things that aren't at all constructive, that aren't at all glorifying to you. Hear us in these uh, few moments of silence as we confess to you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.